2 Timothy chapter 1, and let's look if we can at uh, this, this um, book, and uh, we'll read uh, chapter 4. Would you go to chapter 4 if you would? And let's, uh, if we can, look at um, verse number 1 and verse number 2, and let's read it out loud together. Can we please? And let me ask Brother Lawrence, would you come lead us in reading? Would you please, sir? Verse 1 says, I charge ye therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Thank you very much. I'm going to need a worksheet myself. It's the second time I've come to the platform without my... Uh, my notes. I'm good. We'll see. We'll figure it out. I may have to just make up some stuff. I can't remember. I, I must have left it on my desk. Brother Ernie normally, I leave my glasses in my office. I leave uh, my suit jacket sometimes. It's awful. I don't know if I'm just getting old or this traveling's getting to me. I think uh, just got back from uh, Shreveport today and, and uh, I don't know whether I'm coming or going. I sometimes wake up wondering, where in the world am I? <laughs> But uh, good. I did study, though, I promise you that. So you, I hope you'll find that out in just a minute. But uh, Brother Lawrence has his doubts. Brother Lawrence, I think your mother's calling you someplace here. I love the book of 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy, of course, it's a book written to, to uh, Timothy from Paul. It's interesting. There are three pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Titus, which we'll, stir, we'll, serve, we'll um, have the opportunity to talk about that later this, this month, and, or actually in April. But looking forward to that. But uh, the book of 1 Timothy is six chapters. It was written while Paul was on house arrest in Rome, and he challenged him. He told Pete, Timothy, I'm writing this to you that you would know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And he gave him six points. So number one, keep your doctrine clean and pure. Make prayer a priority. Win, disciple, and train others to do what you're doing. Chapter four, be a good testimony. Chapter five, treat people correctly. Make sure you treat people right, whether they be old men or old ladies or young men, young ladies, whether it be widows. Make sure that if you have widows or older folks in your family, you take care of them in their senior years like they took care of you when you were young. And then chapter six is handling your finances with wisdom, working hard and diligently, uh, associating carefully, don't get caught up in get-rich-quick th- uh, schemes and, and just following, trying to keep up with the Joneses. Associate carefully, live contentedly, and give generously. Let's God, let God make you a channel and not a can. Let Him make you a funnel and not a bucket. Uh, learn to give and let God give through you what He would not give to you. Fast forward, a few years have gone by. He has moved now from that that house that he was able to rent for two years and receive his friends at will, to now move into the Mamantine prison. He is there. I've had the joy to be at the place where they said that he was there, right across the street from the Colosseum in Rome, Italy. And uh, there is a little small, um, small building, or stone building and small jail cells you can see in to where they think maybe he might have been stored. And of course, in the Colosseum where they kept the animals in the, in the basement and they would put people out on the floor and let go with the, the lions and watch them devour them one after the other. 
But he was there and he didn't go to the lions. He thought he was going to get, he said, the Lord delivered me out of the mouth of the lions. He thought he was going to die by having lions tear him apart. He mentions that in this chapter as he writes Timothy. But now he's in a jail cell. It is getting ready to turn into winter. It's the fall of the year. Temperatures are dropping. And he has had some setbacks. At the end of the book, he mentions the partnerships of many people that have served with him. Titus has been one of his confidants. And Timothy is now in another place. And he writes a letter and he tells him, I need you to come and hurry up. Get here quickly. When you come here, stop by and get the coat that I left with Carpus and Troas. Take the coat. I left a coat and it's cold here. So get the coat. And don't forget the Bible. Give me, give, I need to read. I want to, I want to, but here's a guy that's getting ready. He says, now my, the, my time of my departure is at hand. I'm getting ready to go to heaven. But he still wanted to keep learning. He said, bring the Bible, bring other books, and sure, bring the parchments. Bring anything that has the Bible in it. And of course, they were talking about the Old Testament at the time. And uh, he said, make sure you bring that. He said, uh, it's been a rough time. He said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Nothing quite as challenging as when people who get caught up in worldliness and they stop missing, start missing church and they start doing things and going places and posting things that would, they would have never done. But the world got a hold of them. They become spotted by the world. And he said, you know, I could see, the, I could see Demas grabbing hold of that uh, greasy pole. He wrote it all the way to the bottom. He's left. He's gone back into the world. He loves the world more than he loves the things of God. He's gone. He said, only Luke is here with me. Luke was his faithful physician. Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he wrote the book of Luke. The two longest books in our New Testament were written by a medical man named Luke, who was a gifted writer. He detailed things. He researched things. And probably Luke is now dictating or Paul is dictating what this letter says to Luke. And Luke, I'm sure as he wrote that, only Luke is with me. He probably said, thanks a lot, Paul. <laughs> what am I, chopped liver or what? <laughs> you know, only Luke's here, you know. And he begins to say, you know, Titus to Dalmatia, and this person's over here, and they've gone. And, and I'm lonely. I'm cold. I'm somewhat bored. I don't have reading material. And I need you to get here. So when you come, I want you to bring John Mark. Now, John Mark is that uh, young man that fired him up early in his ministry. Probably about 18 years before this, whenever he went out on his first missionary journey, Barnabas, and he brought his nephew, John Mark, and John Mark went with them for a ways. It looks like to me that God always said it was... Um, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. But the first time in your Bible where it says Paul and Barnabas, Paul and his company, when Paul got the lead position from the Holy Spirit, it seems like, the next verse, the Bible says John Mark turned back and he left them and went back. It got too hard. I don't know if they didn't get a good Motel 6 room or uh, I don't know if it just got rough or he got tired of of dodging rocks or, or what. I don't know what happened. But I think probably what happened is he didn't like the idea. He was glad to submit to Barnabas, but he wasn't glad to submit to Paul. As long as Uncle Barnabas was in charge, he was good. But when there, when there was a switch made in leadership, he didn't like it. 
And the next verse, and it bothered Paul. It tore him up. He, he, he continually thought about that. And when, the, when they finished that first mission journey, went back to Jerusalem. It was time to go out again after they'd given the report and, and gotten some, a little bit of time, some R&R. After that, then it's time to go out. And Barnabas says, okay, I'll go with you. I'll get John Mark, and we're going to go again. He said, not bringing John Mark. That guy's a quitter. He's a turncoat. He didn't stay with me. And, and uh, don't no, we're not bringing him. And John Mark... Barnabas, of course, the son of consolation, said, look, we can take him. It's okay. He's going to do okay. And no, Paul was very strong and said, I'm not bringing that one. I'm not not taking him. And the contention was so, so hard that they split up. Paul took his nephew and they went to another place. And Paul, uh, excuse me, Barnabas took his nephew. Paul took Silas and went on to the second missionary journey. It was a very difficult thing, but it, it shows us that good men can have interpersonal problems. Two men, I, in my opinion, I think Barnabas was right and Paul was wrong. But I think Barnabas was the greatest loser because Barnabas, uh, he wasn't willing to submit to that situation. But Paul, as he is now thinking about end-of-life things, he says to his young protege, Timothy, Hey, when you come see me, find John Mark. Go find that kid that I, I know I, know I heard him. I know when I, when I preach, he, feel, he puts his head down. He doesn't want to listen. He, he, he knows I have an issue with him. I don't want to go to my grave with an issue with John Mark. He needs to know that he's profitable. By the way, it's very important that we learn to reconcile hurtful things that we have done in perceptions that have taken place, if at all possible, if you're, it's normal to have a struggle sometime with somebody. The Bible says, as much as life in you, live. Well, there's sometimes it's just not enough in you. <laughs> sometimes peace is not the, is not the, is, is a, it's an attempt, but does, it's not a reality. It's not the product. There are challenges. And we have to guard ourselves from pride. I think pride was the problem here. But uh, Paul writes and says, listen, when you come see me, do your diligence. Come quickly. Get here before winter. Pick up the coat. Make sure you bring the reading material and bring John Mark. Find that boy and bring him here. He needs to know that I love him and he's profitable for the work of the Lord, regardless of what all water under the bridge. Don't you see the maturity of a man? And also you see the heart that he has, the humility he has, especially facing end-of-life things. One of the grievous things that sometimes I see is people who are so stubborn up until their death even. They will not resolve issues. And don't be that kind of a person. On this situation, Paul gives Timothy a challenge. Once again, he's end of life. And we can see that Timothy is very different than Titus. Titus is a bull in a china closet. We'll learn about that in the book of China. In the book of China. (laughs) If there's a book like that, you can read it. Let me know how it happens. Okay. In the book of Titus. In the book of Titus, we'll read about that, and he is, you have to kind of pull him back, because he's, you know, he left him on the island of Crete. He was there for a long time. He said, this island is known for yellow bellies and lazy people and, and liars, and even their own poets tell them that everybody in Crete's a liar. He said, he said you need to stay there and set in order the things that are remaining and ordain elders, and all, every servant of God needs to be trained to reproduce. Needs to continue to keep training. You don't know who your successor will be, but you ought to train 
and, and develop and disciple people from the disciple come leaders. He said, you stay there and you train and you ordain elders in every city on that island of Crete. But Timothy, now both of them had Greek dads. Titus, definitely a Gentile, and, 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 and Timothy was a Gentile on his dad's side. His mom and dad, his mom and his grandmother were teaching about Abraham and Moses and Elijah, and his dad was teaching about Socrates and, and uh, Plato and Aristotle. He was teaching him Greek, Greek things, myths, because he was a Greek. But he was raised in probably a home that was, that was struggled. But nonetheless, uh, Timothy got saved. But Timothy seemed to have a temperament that he was weak. He was not very decisive. He had a lot of fear in his heart, a lot of challenges going on. And Paul uses his last letter to really grab him by the shirt and say, listen, I'm getting out of here and I need you to step up. You, I need to challenge you. And the book is a book of challenges. And I wanted to share it with you real quickly. And of course, with the book, the verses that, that uh, Brother Lawrence read to us, he said, I charge you, therefore, by the Lord Jesus Christ, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering doctrine. You can just tell the tenor of the book is one of challenges. Like a coach at a halftime or at a, at a, uh, at a, a timeout getting right in the face of one of his, his, his players. They listen. Come on, I need you out there. You need to get the rebound. You must take this team on your shoulder. That's kind of what happens, I think, in the book of 2 Timothy. With that in mind, let's look at it real quickly. If we can, we've read chapter 4, verse number 1. But I want you to notice real quick the outline. First of all, it's a personal challenge. Personal challenges. In chapter 1, he challenges Timothy. He says, I want you to stir up the gift of God. Look at verse 6 and read it out loud with me, would you please? We're in 2 Timothy chapter, chapter 1, verse number 6. Let's read it together. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou, by the putting on of my hands. So you see, he challenges him. First of all, he challenges him by the love that he has for him. Verse number 2, he challenges him through prayer night and day. Verse number 3, he challenges him to be devoted with the unseen, the unfeigned faith. He mentions his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice. So you can see he gives him a personal challenge and he tells him, and stir up those things which God's made you good at. But in particular, stir up your, 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 your confidence to lead for God. I, I think with all my heart, Timothy had no interest in being the pastor of a church or the leader. When he signed up, he was just glad to be with Apostle Paul. He is the type of the servant of the Bible. He just wanted to be with the Apostle Paul and help him. He didn't want to start a good thing. He wanted to make a good thing a little bit better. And yet he had been, been put by himself, and Paul is telling him, hey, listen, I need you to step up, and, and I want you to stir up the gift that was given to you by God to lead for him. Look at verse 7. This is a great verse in your Bible, one you should underline. If you don't have it underlined now, put a star by it, circle, the, circle it, underline it. This is a great verse. Are you ready? Let's read it together. For God hath not... Why would he say that to Timothy? I think he said it to Timothy because he was afraid. <laughs> he was afraid. He said, look, that fear you're feeling, it's not coming from God. We are, we are right now, and the devil is a sinister minister of fear. And he's done a good job in our church. <laughs> he's done a good job in society. 
He's had people that know if they die, they'd go to heaven, still struggle to go soul winning, to go to church. They're just gripped. Now, I know that there are, there are precautions that are important to make, but some people, fear has just overwhelmed them. They're just, they're not sure. I've watched a family the other day washing every single thing they got from the grocery store, and they stand on the front porch, they wash it all off and hand it in one by one to the members, making sure that they don't. Sitting out in the, in the front yard, everyone from the same family, if they have one family, the visitor, any visitor comes, they all wear masks sitting around in circles. Now, they're not saved yet, but that's one thing. But boy, when you know the Lord, there ought to be, that spirit of fear does not come from him. But he's given us power, love, and a sound mind. Insecurity is a problem. One of the greatest problems that pastors have, and this pastor is not an exception, is inadequacies. You feel like, man, I just can't do this job. I'm not doing a good job. We got struggling here. We're, we're really, boy, if they got a good pastor here, they would really, do, this place would go, go places. You feel You feel insecure. Uh, when you serve the Lord, you oftentimes do bus workers and Sunday school superintendents and classes like when you worked hard and you, you thought you were going to have 12 in your class and three people showed up. You're thinking, what in the world? And you feel like you just can't do what you're asked to do. Fear overtakes you. Sometimes you're fearful of your kids. You, you, you're worried about them. And rather than you set the pace for your children, the children set the pace for you. And, and by the way, children are a heritage of the, they're his. Parents have to continue to remind themselves, this child is, is God's. These children belong to the Lord. Doesn't mean we're frivolous. We ought to be, we ought to be more careful in, 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 their, in their influences. But we also ought to understand that, that if they're not with you, they're always under God's realm. God loves them and he cares about them. When we have that fear, and fear oftentimes paralyzes Christians, it paralyzes, keeps us from doing what we ought to do. It takes away that power, that love, and a sound mind. Someone who's overwhelmed with fear is not a good lover. Someone who's overwhelmed with fear, nothing like fear to just sap you of your strength. I remember years ago watching America's Funniest Videos, and there was a guy that was, uh, he was holding a flashlight and eating a banana. And uh, a fellow was, was turning the thing on an on electric panel there, and he just acted like he got shocked. He went, ah, ah, and the guy had the flashlight and the banana. He didn't know what to do with either one of them. And he just, he just, he went, I don't know what to do. Because he was afraid to touch him because he thought he would get shocked, you know. And so he's got the banana and he's like this right here. And then the guy starts laughing. And he says, man, you're killing me. I have no strength. Boy, after you get afraid, often when you're afraid, you don't have strength. You don't have power. Oftentimes, people who are not secure in the love of Christ or, or the love of a husband or the love of a mom or a dad oftentimes struggle in basic responsibilities. I just can't do it. I can't do it. They can, but they're overwhelmed with fear. Power, love. And then it messes, gives you squirrely thinking. And when, you, when we're afraid, we start thinking a little bit squirrely. We don't have a sound mind. It's not, a, it's not clear. He's telling him, he only give you some practical challenges. He talks to him a little bit about suffering going through some difficult times. Let's look at the second chapter. And the second chapter is about, it's a practical challenge. And it, it's, it gives us several things that remind us to, number one, here's a key word, teach, endure, study, serve. 
In chapter 2, look at verse number 1, would you please? We talked through this with our Sunday school teachers a few moments ago. Let's read chapter 2, verse number 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Verse number 3, read it with me. Thou therefore endure as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warth entangled himself with the affairs of this life, but he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. In chapter 2, he's going to give him a practical challenge. Chapter 2, chapter 1, personal. He's talking about his mom, his grandma. He's talking about his fears. He's talking about his gifts. He's talking about how much he loves him and his prayers. He's talking about the suffering. He does reference a man named Onesiphorus in the bottom of have friendship, how that friends are very important. He talks about that in chapter 1. Chapter 2, he says, look, here's Timothy. I'm going to give you a practical challenge. Here's what I need you to be like. Number one, I want you to be strong. Not in your own strength, but the grace of God. Number two, I want you to teach the things that I've taught you. You find other faithful people, teach them that they can teach other people also. He's telling them to disciple people. He says, I want you to disciple people. Keep working with folks. Dear friend, every one of you can, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian very long at all, you can help someone else grow in Jesus, and you should. And it's hard to do, but once you do it, you're glad you did it. The devil's fighting you. Schedules will be a problem. People's interests will be a problem. Keep on. If you're working with someone and they kind of fall off the planet, get somebody else. Keep working with them. He said, I want you to, I want you to, he said, I'm practically, I'm telling you, I want you to be strong in grace. I want you to be a teacher. Number three, he wants you to be a soldier. He said, I want you to be a soldier. I want you to endure hardness like a soldier does. I want you to be selfless like a soldier is. I want you to not get caught up with the affairs of this life. Brother Alexander, he served in Afghanistan and, and, and Iraq. I'm sure when he shipped out to go there, he didn't take his entertainment center. He didn't take all of his models that he made when he was a kid. He didn't take all of his trophies and stuff that he might have got in sports. He didn't, he didn't take all, all, of his, all of his knickknacks. No, he's a soldier. Soldiers are going over there. They're not going to live in Iraq long. They're just in there to get the job done and get home. And they don't want to get bogged down with a bunch of Atari systems and, and uh, Atari, that's real old, isn't it? That was back in his day. I'm, I'm on track here. Pac-Man, oh boy, you're getting me, you're, you're really getting throwback now. He's not going to get the Xbox. He's not going to take all those things with him. No, because he's a soldier. He's just going in there not to get entangled with this world but to, to please the one who put him into the service. Sure, Brother Vogel knows more about that when he went to Vietnam as a soldier boy. And he didn't, he didn't go over there with a bunch of stuff. He, matter of fact, he wanted to travel light. He said, I want you to be that way, Timothy. Then he says, I want you to be like an athlete. No man striveth. If you're striving, you want to be, you want to win. If you're going to win, you've got to play by the rules. You've got to keep the rules. Listen, everybody has rules. God tells us not to commit adultery, not commit fornication. That's a rule. It doesn't matter how good of a catch you make, if you step out of bounds when you catch it, it doesn't count. It doesn't matter how far you hit the baseball, if it's out of bounds, if it's in the foul territory, no one stands up and they don't give you a, they don't give you a run for that. It's, it's out of bounds. Doesn't matter the, the rules, whatever the rules are. 
of basketball. You can, you can be shooting a three-point line or you can be shooting a basketball, but if you're standing on the out-of-bounds line and you make it, it doesn't count. You have to play with the rules. If you get too smart mouth with the referee, he puts a technical, he puts another technical, you're out of the game. They'll, those ex, they'll, they'll put you out. Well, there's rules in Christianity. He said, look, play by the rules. Be disciplined. Then he tells them, he said, look, if you're a farmer, the way to be fruitful is to be faithful. The husbandman worketh, and he enjoys what he does. You be a husband. You keep being faithful. Whenever you don't see the, the corn on the stalk, keep, keep plowing. Keep working the weeds. Keep watering. It's going to come in time. Then he tells them, be willing to suffer. He said, don't be afraid of my chain. And he said, I want you to go through difficult times. He tells them, be a student. Here's the verse. You probably, I'll start it. You tell me what it says. In chapter 2, verse 15, study to show thy approved uh, unto God. A workman need not to be ashamed. Right divided. He said, be a student. And then he says, be of clean. Be a vessel unto honor. He said, in a great house, in a mansion, there are many vessels. Some you wash feet with. Some of them you, you water plants with. Some of them you put out in China for your guests that come. Some of them you, you might pour into your water pail for your dog. He said, there are vessels, some are wood and some are earth, some are clay, and some are silver and some are gold. He said, what vessel you are, Timothy, this doesn't matter. Well, I don't know if I'll ever preach. Forget it. Well, I never have a prestigious, forget it. You might be a wooden or a clay pot versus a silver. He said, but what's important is that when you wanted something to drink, is that it's clean. <laughs> it's been purged. He said, keep your life clean, Timothy. Be a clean vessel and make sure that you're clean and meet for the master. When the master wants to use it, boy, when you go to a cabinet in a, someone's home or your home, you don't, if you, most of us, we go out to get a restaurant. If they give you a water or a coffee and someone's, you know, lipstick is on there from last time, hang on a second. You're not, you're not ready. Oh, that doesn't matter. I'll wipe it off. I don't think so. No, whenever, whenever you come to, to get a cup out of, the, out of the cabinet, you just take a gander at it, look at it, and say, oh, I think it's good. But it could be a gold cup, but if it's got a booger on the side, you don't want it. You're like, I, I don't care. I'll take, a, I'll take a wooden cup for that sake, just as long as it's clean. And when the master, the Lord God, goes looking for someone, you know what he's looking for? He's looking for clean. He's looking for pure. He's not looking for fancy. Boy, if you saw the disciples, I don't think you would have ever said, oh, those guys are sharp. Oh, that's a, that's a nice group right there. You're probably saying, really? You pick them? A guy that walks around all the time says, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I don't believe it. This is ridiculous. Mr. Thomas. No, two guys are fighting. I'm first. I'm second. You know, like, come on, man. Knock it off. Even got their mom involved. Peter, always cussing, saying bad words three and a half years at the devil's fire there that time. I mean, probably like, oh, you're kidding me. Simon the Zealot, all caught up in political theories, trying to fight the government. All these guys, and yet they're, they're guys that were, they weren't flashy, but they were faithful. And they were clean, and they responded to the Lord. That's all of us we can do. And then the end of the chapter, he says, I want you to be a, a servant. The servant of God must not strive. 
So don't, don't get caught up in every fight you can find. Quit fighting and arguing. But be gentle with all men, apt to teach and patient. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God prevention would give people repentance, a change of mind and heart, that they would acknowledge the truth and they could recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who taken them captive at his will. He says, listen, Timothy, personally, don't forget what God put in your heart. Practically, be strong. Be a teacher. I want, you, I want you to be like a soldier. I want you to be like an athlete. I want you to be like a farmer. Be faithful so you can be fruitful. Be willing to take on difficult tasks and suffer and go through hardness. Be a student. Be clean. Be a servant. Don't argue. Keep working with people. God can change them. Then chapter 3, he gives a perilous day challenge. On your notes there, and I'll conclude pretty quickly, a perilous day challenges. Some of the key words there is the word know, steadfast. He wanted him to be steadfast and to know. I want to encourage you, if you would please, if you look at chapter 3, you'll see, he says, this know also in the last days, perilous times are going to come. He gives 18 different attributes of perilous days. It looks like you're reading USA Today in the United States of America when you read it. But it's not just the society at large, it's primarily Christian people, Christian leaders. He says, number one, they will, they will start out with a bunch of selfish sins. Look at them real quickly, would you? Would you look at that? 2 Timothy chapter number 3. The Bible says in verse number one, it will be, it'll be perilous times. Verse number, th- verse number two, for men shall be lovers of whom? And then covetous and boasters and proud and blasphemers and disobeying their parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. They don't have natural love for one another. Truce breakers, they can't tell the truth. Can't trust their words. False accusers, they make up stuff on other people. Incontinent, they're always addicted. They cannot contain themselves. They're fierce, they're mean. Despisers of those that are good. Seems like right is wrong, wrong is right. Someone does a good thing, it seems like they're the ones they gang up on. They're the ones they make fun of. He's going to give a bunch of selfish sins. And then notice the next group of sins that come from that. And if you would please, look at verse number 6. And from this sort, what kind of sort? All these selfish sins that are mentioned there. Are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away of diverse lusts? Basically, immorality. One thing that precedes sexual sins is selfish sins. People fall into immorality that say, I just deserve to be happy. Find that Bible verse for me. It's not a Bible verse. No place in the Bible says you you deserve to be happy. But you get discontent in your relationship, and your marriage, then you start looking across the fence. You're saying, I'm going to find some greener pastures. What you don't know is it's astroturf. What you don't know, it's over a sewage tank. What you don't know, it's going to get you in all kinds of... He said, from the sword of selfishness comes sexual sins. And they, and they just... And then... People become ever learning and never come to the knowledge of the truth. Searching sins. We've got more information flying around in our day and time. There's more doctrines going on. There's the, 
this doctrine and that doctrine and this blog and this blog and all this new, new teaching and now you can drink and now you don't need the King James Bible. Go ahead and go to a different version of the scriptures. It's all been there, but it's just, it's just pushing continually. Dropping your standards. They've redefined grace and, and uh, I want to not be a fundamentalist anymore. I don't want to believe the fundamentals of the Bible. I want to be different. And it just, just continue, ever learning, but walking around the elephant in the living room, which is truth. Never coming to the knowledge of a truth. Just, just, just want to talk about ideas, want to talk about fuzzy-wuzzy feelings and how I view things and what happened to me when I was a kid and how I had this, all the stuff. Rather than getting, they're getting bored with the basics and the truth, and they ignore the truth. But then it says, but they will proceed no further. One day it will be stopped. Yeah, it's selfish, it's sinful, it's searching, but it will be stopped. And then, of course, he's, he gives the antidote to perilous days. Four thoughts, he tells him, he said, now you have a good testimony. You've fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, have a good testimony. Number two, he says, I want you to be willing to go through difficult times. Number three, continue. Continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing of whom you've learned it. A lot, of, a lot of problems will make you feel like, I don't think I can keep going. He said, you keep doing it. And then he tells him, make sure that you're, you're, you're focused on the scriptures. He said, from a child, you've known the holy scriptures. And all scriptures give my inspiration of God and is what? It's profitable. Why God give us the Bible? Four reasons. Salvation, so we know how to be saved. Number two, so we know how to be successful. Anybody who loves and focuses and reads and meditates and obeys the Bible, it will be profitable for you. It will be successful. And then that the man of God may be perfect. What's the word perfect mean? Mature, complete. That you'll be seasoned. You'll, 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 you'll be seasoned. And then the last thing he tells them in that chapter, he says that you'll be profitable to every good work so you can serve God more effectively. And one day you can hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And then the last one is the parting challenge. The parting challenge. Preaching and partnerships are the two things there. Here's the, here's the concluding lessons. Number one, recognize fear and its source. If you're afraid, realize that that did not come from God. They say a hundred times in the Bible, God says, fear not. Don't fear. And uh, one of the things he says is fear not because I'm with you. Nothing takes away fear quite like knowing the presence of God. So recognize fear. Reproducing ourselves uh, in service pleases God. Reproducing ourselves and finding others. Number three, if you'll look real quickly at chapter 2 and verse number 10, 11. Can we look there real quickly? Chapter 2, verses 10, 11. The Bible says, Therefore I endure... All things for the elect's sake, that they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, to eternal glory. Read verse 11 with me, would you please? It is a... So I want you to endure and, pre and prepare uh, for, for difficult days. And then lastly there, I love the fact that he says that friendships matter. Be a good friend. Be a good friend. He mentions one guy, and his name is Onesiphorus. Let's look at it real quickly. Chapter 1. If you look at the last chapter, he mentions many people. Demas, John Mark, Luke, um, Carpus. 
Alexander, who was not a good friend. He mentions, he mentions Titus and other, other people, uh, Christians. But look, if you would please, at chapter 1, verse 16. This is a great testimony. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus. Aren't you glad your mother didn't name you Onesiphorus? Here's what he knew about. He said, he said, when the Lord comes, I want him to bless that guy. Why? Because he oft did what? Can you do that? You know, some people are glad when we walk in the room. Some people are glad when we walk out of the room. And really, it depends a lot upon refreshing people. When you come in, do you bring something of encouragement, or do you just complain and gripe and frustrate? He said, I want to I say that God's going to bless that guy. Why? Because he offered fresh me. Number two, he was not ashamed of my what? Chain, of my sufferings, the difficulties I went through. What's the next thing it says, verse 17? But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently, and he found me. God grant unto him that he shall find mercy in the Lord in that day, in judgment day, and how many things he ministered to me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. Friendship matters. Be a good friend. 